out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show, always playing the finest in indie pop. Sometimes before, sometimes after that amazing decade. But anyway, we also love a special guest and this week it is going to be the turn of the singer-songwriter and also comic book artist. It is the one and only Jeffrey Lewis, who I spoke to a few days ago to find out more about life, love, poetry, all that other groovy stuff. And also Crass Records, or Crass, the band. This is the interview, and after a bit of casual chat, we get down to that exciting question of those early musical years. Jeffrey, it's over to you. Well... I guess, uh, let's see, I wasn't really, I certainly, I wasn't making songs as a teenager, um, but I became very deeply, uh, you know, obsessive about just buying records and getting into music at maybe around age 13 or 14, started really discovering rock and roll just from the classic rock radio stations that were on at that time. And I hadn't really paid that much attention to music previously in my life. I always listened to the radio, but I didn't really consciously, you know, think about what was on there. It was just kind of whatever was on was on. But then when I kind of discovered like somehow just started getting into like the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan and all that stuff, uh, it was luckily at a time when people were just getting dumping their vinyl records in like the early 90s so all of that classic rock stuff for somebody who was interested in it it was just dirt cheap and you could just get those records for a couple of bucks everywhere um and uh so that was kind of my my musical introduction and you know as time went on and i started to realize like oh i i already have every Jimi hendrix record i have every Creedence Clearwater record, I have, you know, every Beatles record, etc. Um, you know, as you do, as as anybody who gets into music, you start slowly branching out experimentally and being like, huh, who are, what is this King Crimson record? I never heard of this. What is this? Uh, you know, and you just start experimentally buying other things that you don't really know about. And some of them you might get quite into. So for me, uh, I guess a real gateway into writing my own songs was um, Sid Barrett and discover, you know, through the early Pink Floyd stuff that I was a big fan of, I started hearing, uh, I started getting my hands on Sid Barrett's solo recordings. And these were just so raw and so different from any of the classic rock stuff that I'd been into. It was very shocking, really. Um, and it was kind of my introduction to, I guess, what you could call lo-fi or, uh, you know, almost like a home recording style. And then I read an article at some point I was flipping through a, a music magazine in like the early mid 90s, maybe around 1994, 95. And there was a little article that mentioned Sid Barrett and it said there's a guy who's sort of like an American Sid Barrett and his name is Daniel Johnston, and he has mental problems like Sid Barrett had, and he makes these very creative, wonderful recordings. And I was like, oh, if he's like Sid Barrett, I have to hear this guy. 
And that was how I became interested in Daniel Johnston. And then that really opened up the, the whole idea of, you know, you could make songs you, just with a tape recorder. You could, uh, it just, his just relentless creative approach that you couldn't, that nothing could stop you really. It didn't really matter um, what your equipment was, what, that just making songs was just a wonderful creative outlet. And that kind of started me making songs in addition to making the comic books that I'd always been making and yes. making, making art and making songs both became a big part of my life in uh, those years, which yeah. is like my early twenties. I basically, I was, I was out of college and I started making songs and playing at the open mics. And then kind of one thing led to another and the songs led to playing gigs, which led to doing tours. And uh, here we are. Yes. Well, absolutely. And um, cause, cause I, I noticed it doesn't take a lot. You're much younger than me because because I grew up, you know, without giving too much away, but I was born in the mid 60s. So I'm in my mid 50s now. So during the 70s, you know, watching Top of the Pops, it was all kind of the glam stuff and a bit of heavy metal and status quo. But it was kind of the 80s indie stuff that I, I suppose I was particularly suddenly had that moment. And it was kind of hearing the, the work of people like Morrissey and the Smiths that had this massive influence and then the go-betweens and the June Bride. So all that kind of, I suppose... At the same time, you had that Trevor Horn production sound on the mainstream charts and you had the hair metal stuff of L.A., um, you know, and everyone, you know, people like Bruce Springsteen and his massive biceps and everyone was getting very excited. So the whimsical kids of the kind of the indie world like uh, that I related to was quite easy to uh, get and one of those kind of because you mentioned Daniel Johnson but I remember Michelle Schott brought out an album in the mid 80s which was kind of I think it called something like her fireside album before the one that she did Anchorage on and that was recorded around a campfire and you could hear crickets and you could even hear a car going down the lane because she was in a, some sort of little festival so that 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 at the time seemed kind of radical but then you know, there was all, there's always kind of, without being a dirty word, there was always a market for different things, aren't there? So, you know, the, us indie kids who were sort of a bit introverted and sort of weren't working out in the gym and had a sort of amazing hairstyles, you know, it, it's kind of, you instantly pick your tribe, don't you? Yeah, and I suppose, obviously, as, you know, teenagers and young adults, that idea of a tribe is especially important because you haven't really had time to create a life yourself a life takes a number of years to build so you do gravitate towards these kind of uh almost prefabricated lives that seem to fit you almost like a uh, a deck of tarot cards and you associate yourself well maybe i'm like you know my persona or or the kind of things that i could see myself fitting into that interest me are like the uh you know the fool or the you know perhaps the the prince of wands or something I almost feel like these different tribal identifications are like these kind of um, archetypes that you find yourself in the, or perhaps it's like a, a kingdom that you find yourself in the phylum of, or some some blanket identification that stands in for all of the years of life, the expression of life that you haven't had time to graft for yourself. Um, so it's almost like a um, a developmental phase like uh you know having a teddy bear or having an imaginary friend when you're a child and you're processing what uh, interactions are and what thoughts are and what communication is um and obviously i mean maybe that sounds very uh condescending towards people that are you know going through that process now 
but it's, you know, it's a wonderful thing. I, I was, uh, you know, for me, that tribal identification was, you know, a hippie 60s thing. And I was, you know, very, even though I wasn't doing the drugs, I was extremely deeply, deeply into psychedelic graphics and music and um, yes. 60s psychedelic music and uh, just ephemera, just weird, uh, anything that I, I could find that had anything to do with 60s psychedelia was just uh, very important to me. And I was, you know, dressing the part and had long hair and everything. So did the image come before the music? Because it was the work of Sunday, say, Stanley, is it Stanley Mouse? And various other people mm -hmm. did all those Grateful Dead album uh, covers and posters. Was that as kind of did did you sort of discover that before you started discovering the music? Well, the music was first because it was just from the radio. It was like you know finding the classic rock station on the radio where I was suddenly instead of just hearing like uh, pop songs, you know, eighties synthesized pop stuff, which. Uh, you know, Prince and Madonna and all that stuff, which I just never, you know, I didn't really, it, it, it was what was on, but it, it didn't really get me that excited compared to accidentally turning the dial and discovering, you know, stuff like uh, Bob Dylan's Ballad of a Thin Man or Cream's Tales of Brave Ulysses. These things were so psychedelic and so evocative and creative that it was like all the comic books that I was into as a kid. It was like these cosmic scenes and strange characters. And it was just so much, uh, just this, it just exploded the whole concept of what you could put in a, in a song, you know, my, my, my little mind was completely blown. So, and then, you know, a lot of the comics that I was into, I started realizing like there was quite a lot of psychedelia. I had never thought of it that way as a kid, but, you know, as a teenager getting into 60s stuff, and, you know, starting to smoke pot and just discovering all, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, actually Dr. Strange and uh, <laughs> Fantastic Four, these, these things are like actually very psychedelic. The, the 60s comics, uh, Jack Kirby's artwork, uh, Jim Steranko, Steve Ditko, uh, these things were really, they matched very much with the 60s music. And then I started to realize that there were, actually was a cross, I mean, the, um, the second Pink Floyd album, A Saucer Full of Secrets, uh, Doctor Strange is right there on the cover of the album. And um, Country Joe and the Fish would mention like Spider-Man and their lyrics. And I, there was just this irresistible connection between 60s comic books, 60s music, the graphics, the, the, the sounds. Um, so that really drew me in. But that yeah. was quite different than the kind of music I ended up, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't writing songs. I, I wasn't thinking of it as something that I was doing, you know, I was a comic book artist. I just loved that music. It wasn't until I discovered the more indie kind of stuff later in life yes. uh, in college that I started thinking of making my own songs. So keeping on that, did you, I mean, Robert Crumb was one of those artists that we all kind of loved. And then we saw the film Crumb as well with his rather interesting and slightly dysfunctional family. Did you, do you ever sort of worry that, that to become that artist, you have to go through a certain amount of insanity to get there, either with, with the Sid Barrett kind of example, or, you know, even David Bowie used to worry about the madness in his family. And, and obviously Crumb, even though he was kind of brought in by the 60s kind of culture, he definitely didn't really have anything to do with it, but like Jack Kerouac as well and the Beats. 
they sort of didn't really enjoy the Ken Kesey stuff and the electric Kool-Aid acid test. So did you, were you kind of drawn to that? Sometimes when you're young, you're kind of drawn to those people because you kind of want to be interested in like, or, you know, enigmatic and all that kind of world. Well, I, I was certainly, at, you know, in the category of kids who is like an outsider on uh, like, you know, a lot of, kids are probably maybe even a higher proportion of kids feel like that than feel like they're inside, whatever that means. Uh, you know, just being, being lonely, having a lot of time to kill, not having, uh, the attention of girls, not, you know, not feeling like, uh, you really belonged in this world for whatever reason. Uh, that's why somebody would gravitate towards, drawing all the time, for example, uh, and then somebody who's really on the extreme end of that things, you know, turns into a Robert Crumb who draws so much more than anybody else draws that they just become exceptionally good at it. And that that is a form of insanity. But I think, you know, art, art is a form of insanity in the sense that it's exceptional. It's, it's what is outside the curve of normality is what will what somebody will gravitate towards as being truly exceptional and whether that's you know Jimi Hendrix's guitar playing or uh you know the recordings of Crass or the you know the songwriting of Bob Dylan or whatever it is it's it's somebody who's gone where nobody else has gone before so it really strikes you when you encounter it you're like what you sort of you need to experience it because your mind is just hungry for something it hasn't experienced before. And yes, you could certainly say that somebody like Crumb or Daniel Johnston uh, or Sid Barrett, they, you know, they, they had these uh, things that made them exceptional people outside of the curve of normality. And that's why their art uh, is so striking and powerful and stands out among the millions of other humans that are also making songs and making drawings because they've just gone deeper into, you know, they've gone further away from the, the normal. But that's also the case for even the so-called normal artists. I don't think that Bob Dylan or Jimi Hendrix, just to use random examples, or even the Beatles, uh, they were not normal people. They did not do what most people were doing, the, the amount of time that they actually spent on their craft is uh, what you could call insane. I mean, to just play guitar all day long is, you know, basically a form of insanity. And it does not necessarily, I, I don't think that goes hand in hand with being a so-called normally socialized person. Um, so, yeah, anybody who ends up being striking and exceptional is almost by definition just somehow outside of the average. They they land on the chart of uh, average intersections of culture. They're somewhere on the fringe of what their home culture consider is uh, you know the mathematical average. Yeah, just as a random theory, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good theory because, because um, obviously, one of my soundtracks of the eighties, because he spoke to me just personally, was Morrissey and the Smiths. I mean, and then you sort of, you know, I used to love listening to his early interviews, and he just had this kind of, you know, obviously the 
extreme outside of, of it really wasn't going to happen for him. But luckily, Johnny Marr turned up and they formed the band. And then, you know, decades later, you know, things don't sound so great when he talks anymore, which is a bit of a shame for us dedicated Morrissey fans. I mean, did, did were you influenced or were you aware of that, that kind of 80s indie stuff that was coming out of the UK? And, and because... Because in a way, there was stuff on America like the Rain Parade and Dream Syndicate, but an early REM. But then there was, you know, it wasn't really until grunge that that sort of America sort of made a movement that was quite unique, and with people like Sonic Youth and the Big Black. So I just wondered if the indie pop world of the the UK sort of resonated in your bedroom. It certainly did not intersect with me um, at the time. I was. You know, I was basically of the perfect age where Nirvana really hit. Uh, well, I was in high school when um, the Nevermind album was blowing up through America and through culture. I was about 16 and I was a dedicated hippie going to Grateful Dead shows. And, you know, that was 100% of the music that I was into was just 60s. 60s uh, psychedelic stuff and classic rock stuff and hippie stuff. And the Nirvana stuff, um, somehow it just grabbed me and appealed to me. And it just seemed like this wonderful, exciting moment where everybody in my high school, the punks, the metalheads, the hippies, uh, you know, everybody had this one thing that they could agree on. And that kind of had never happened before. And a couple other bands at that time, Jane's Addiction and Faith No More, were also these kind of crossover bands that um, people with these different tribal associations were all, could all kind of agree on. You know, you could have a, a Faith No More button on your backpack, even though the other buttons on your backpack might have been Slayer or, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix or whatever. Yes. But, um, but that was... You know, this is like 92, and um, I remember somebody making me a mixtape that had stuff by Sonic Youth and the Pixies, and it was just too, it just didn't grab me. I was like, eh, you know, I just went back to listening to, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones and and Nirvana, because um, even stuff like Sonic Youth and the Pixies just seemed a little too weird and distasteful to me. But it wasn't when I was in college, um, as I talk about a bit in the, the liner notes of my 12 Crass songs album, I have a whole comic book in there that explains how I first heard Crass. And it was because uh, my roommate in college was like this big skinhead guy. And I'd never even heard of skinheads or, uh, you know, and, and I was like this little hippie guy with long hair. And it was we were a very funny duo, <laughs> very unlikely pair, but we were mashed together against our will. And we had to be roommates together and we actually became very good friends and we introduced each other to a lot of interesting music that neither one of us might otherwise have heard so that would have been it was through my skinhead roommate ezra that i would have first heard a lot of the british 80s stuff um and some of that was ska uh, i remember listening to in that room he would play a lot of uh like the selector and the specials and things like that. And I'd never heard of any of that stuff. And uh, similarly for Crass and 
a lot of oi music which i who i had never heard of skinhead music oi you know we were listening to a lot of the foreskins and things like that and um yeah various just uh and and he also had a even though he was like a big tough skinhead he had a sort of uh spot in his record collection for things like the smiths and that was kind of my first exposure to some of that and i found it kind of intolerably uh pretentious it was just like the <laughs> subject of it was just something that i would i would mock it just seemed so preposterous the you know the pretentious way that morrissey would sing and um i just couldn't it, it wasn't something that i could really get behind but i didn't start to really actively get into that stuff until i got out of college really and then i started discovering you know, I started getting actually deeply into Sonic Youth and the Smiths and Minor Threat and, you know, all of the 80s things uh, that I was, you know, I remember finding a couple of Smiths records in the street and taking them home and being like, oh, this is actually really good. So, you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't very long until I actually owned every Smiths record and uh you know, and then it became a massive. The fall, the fall was a very big discovery for me. Uh, when I got into the fall, uh, this is after college, but I just became, uh, you know, a massive. I, I, I hadn't found myself in such an obsessive fandom with a band since my early, you know, teenage years. But that was wonderful to like discover this whole body of work that you could just get very deeply into. Yes, well, quite. And um, so, like. In in the um, the O years, two thousand onwards, you you were incredibly prolific. And I've interviewed Lawrence from Felt, and also a guy called uh, Momus as well, who both solo artists who are, who are quite quirky, and um, sometimes a bit peculiar. But um, they they were doing an album a year. I mean, Felt, you know, Lawrence from Felt was saying that in the eighties he tried to do an album a year and just managed it. And I think Momus has just been doing the same for about three decades. Um, did they come onto your radar at all? I never heard any felt. Um, but moment, I had a friend in college who was into Momus, and she put some songs on mixtapes for me. Um, but yeah, I never. Uh, yeah, that stuff never grabbed me in the way that, uh, say, some of the bands that you were mentioning. Like, uh, I guess I would associate some of that stuff with what gets referred to as like C86, the C86 sound. Um, if that's a phrase that means something to you. Um, band, you mentioned the June Brides. Yes, the June Brides. Look, um, I, I have got my so, cassette. Oh yeah, oh wow, there you go. Um, right, see that? Um, I, I only kind of heard that phrase, C86, and I was like, what does this mean? I, I have no idea what that means, um, but I did over the years start to notice that there were certain bands with that sound, that era, that I started to really love. And um, you know, the June Brides—I I don't know if the Chills count in that. Um, I got pretty into the Chills, uh, you know, just as as you obviously are as well. Just a voracious music listener, and just you just follow every branch of possible interest and in certain things. You're you're just constantly trying to make new discoveries of like, what is the next great band that I'm going to find? And you hit a lot of dead ends. You find a lot of music that doesn't get you that excited. And then you think, oh, I guess I've heard everything good that there is. And then you open some new door and you're like, oh my goodness, here's 
you know, yes. kraut rock. I, here's, you know, 30 kraut rock albums that I need to find and that are, that are knocking me out. And then here's, you know, 80s American hardcore punk. Like here's all this great stuff. Or here's, uh, you know, 60s jazz. I, you know, th there's, there's these infinite doors to go down. And as a, as a lifelong music lover, it's it's just constantly very exciting. I just I love listening to music all the time. Yes. So going to two thousand, the, the you know that decade, and you brought out the last time I did acid, I went insane. You got this on Rough Trade Records, which must have felt like you'd gone from just being a sort of a real cult artist who was going to just play in front of their friends, family, and anybody else they can emotionally blackmail to see, to to suddenly getting some sort of bigger exposure. Did that? How did that come about? Your, your rough trade record moment? Uh, well, quite unlikely and just a phenomenal combination of strange and unlikely factors because, uh, you know, mostly you really have to credit Jeff Travis at Rough Trade with taking a chance on this complete unknown uh, weird kid. Uh, and, you know, I still had my long hair I was like the most unhip, you couldn't imagine a less hip, less modern thing. And I was just, a, you know, this weird uh, comic book artist, hippie guy making these home recordings and playing at open mic nights and just a complete weirdo loser. Uh, and Jeff Travis at Rough Trade, uh, just once again took uh, a chance and got in touch and um you know i would never have had the gumption to send my recordings out to record labels that wasn't something i was ever considering doing i just really liked the daniel johnston model of doing things you just write songs record them on tape recorders make tapes and if the songs are good enough people will make copies of the tapes and give them to other people and if the songs are good enough, those people will make copies of the tapes and give them to other people. And that was just my whole thing. I was wanted to strip away everything that was inessential and just bring it down to, uh, you know, do these songs really mean something? Do they really express something that feels, you know, emotionally vital to me? And if I can get that down on tape, then maybe it will connect with other people as well and that was you know that was kind of just all I was doing I was just getting these tapes out there and it, I guess it was working because people were you know people who heard it were playing it for other people and in that chain of connections at one point um this band the moldy peaches came to New York City and they started playing at the open mics and somebody told them, oh, you guys have to hear this guy, Jeffrey Lewis. You, you would really like what he's doing. And so they, uh, it was probably, I can think of a couple of likely suspects. Maybe it was Steve Espinola or somebody like that who gave the Moldy Peaches, who, who told the Moldy Peaches to listen to my stuff. And then the Moldy Peaches in turn, uh, they signed to Rough Trade and they told Jeff Travis at Rough Trade, or maybe Jeff Travis asked them, you know, is there anybody else you recommend in New York City? Like, who do you guys listen to in New York City? Who's interesting? Because the Strokes were quite a phenomenon in that year. You have to remember mm -hmm. this was, you know, this is like 
the year 2001, two, year 2000, 2001, Rough Trade has just, uh, you know, had this massive success discovering the strokes in New York City. And then they were quite successful with the moldy peaches as well. So it would be natural for Rough Trade to start being interested in, oh, we're having all the success with these New York City acts. Who else might, who else is worth checking out in New York City? So they asked the Moldy Peaches, like, who else should we check out? And they said, oh, you should, here's, the, and the Moldy Peaches gave Jeff Travis a cassette of my stuff. And they were like, here, listen to this guy, Jeffrey Lewis. So the next thing I knew, basically, uh, I just, you know, I got an email from Rough Trade saying, like, we've heard some of your stuff. Would you be interested in releasing this on Rough Trade? And, you know, nobody had ever offered me anything like that before. So they gave me $1,000, which was a colossal amount of money to me at the time. And again, to the eternal credit of Jeff Travis, he didn't even, he was willing to just release those home recordings just as they were. You know, he didn't say, these are good songs, but these are horrible recordings. Let's get you into a studio and make proper recordings. He said, whatever you want to do, Jeffrey, what do you, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, if you like those recordings, let's just put them out. So that was it. They just just directly from the cassette. That was the first time my stuff was ever on CD. Before that, I was just making tapes. And they just released this, this CD of my stuff, which sounded horrible. You know, it was just home recordings from somebody who didn't know how to sing or play or anything. And very just a very unlikely circumstance that that would end up on Rough Trade. They've done it, you, yes, but they, they kind of, you know, I always remember Bill Hicks did a whole thing about marketing, didn't he, the anti-establishment market. So there's always a, I guess there's always a market for every, every little subgroup, isn't there? And I guess he just thought, well, there'll be a market for this. I, I really don't know. I don't know what, I don't know if I met the expectations of what Rough Trade thought might happen with me, or maybe they didn't even think anything beyond this is interesting let's make uh, let's put this out but then not you know 17 years on rough trade I, no artist i've i'm sure i hold the world's record for the most time uh associated with rough trade yes. i don't think anybody in history has ever you know ever put out as many records and spent as much time as a rough trade artist so <laughs> somehow that became my fate Yes, because having done this show for quite a long time, I've, I realised most bands and artists have about five, a five-year narrative, you know, in, in back in the 80s, you know, like there was a lot of unemployment, so a lot of kids were sort of unemployed, and it wasn't a big kind of taboo at the time. It was almost like, well, that's what you do. You just spend two years on the dole, and a lot of people, you know, were either unemployed or they claimed job seekers allowance or enterprise allowance, which kind of gave you a year almost... So they could take those figures and get them off the kind of unemployment record, you know, books so that didn't look so bad for the government at the time. And a lot of people sort of formed bands and then, you know, made a bit of a quirky record. John Peel would play it. Then you get a John Peel session in the first album. Things going quite well. Then the second album can be a bit hard. And third album, most bands just finished. And the, and the other thing that I didn't realise until I just started doing this was that um, if anybody from the UK toured America, that always finished them off. They just, you know, every every interview would say, and we went to America, came back and broke up. So, but you, you know, during your decade, well, you know, you're still going, but, you know, you definitely were able to still keep the, the gig on the road because did making all those early cassettes and early work, did that help give you that foundation of, 
I mean, I know you didn't have that X factor kind of moment of kind of stardom, but did it sort of give you a little bit of a, the foundation, a bit like David Bowie's 60s stuff, which, you know, is Well, I, you know, I still stick to the same rules as I ever did just from the beginning. I'll just write songs and record them. And some of those songs, and I, you know, and I try to play at open mics every week. You know, nowadays there's no open mics going on during the health crisis, but um, you know, I'll come home from a tour and the next Monday night I'm right there at the open mic with, with one or two new songs. And that's, you know, making stuff is what really appeals to me. And, you know, things have evolved for me quite a bit over the years from, you know, just recording in my bedroom and uh, just playing at open mics. Now there's tours and, you know, putting albums out on labels and things like that. But uh, it's not that different because it's still, it's just the, the lesson of Daniel Johnson is just if there's a good song, if you really feel like you're able to put your, your heart into something, that then nothing else matters. That's it. Uh, from then till now, that's just been the, the through line. Yes. And it's, it's still the case. I still need to sit down and, and make a song. And, uh, and if that song is, means something to me, then maybe it'll mean something to somebody else. Yes. So, so you did mention, you know, the reason for doing the Crass um, album, which came a few years later. Um, and but is that the first time you did a, an, an album of... Well, covering other people's material quite so prolifically uh yeah i i would certainly never done a covers album before um but i co always covered a lot of people's songs i was always a fan of uh you know doing cover songs in my in my live gigs um uh, and quite often you know trying to do either unexpected covers or covers where the point of it was not that people in the audience would recognize the song. The point of it was that here's a song that I think is just an exceptional, amazing song. And hopefully nobody in the audience has even heard it before. So I can just enter and be like, look what, I, you know, it's kind of like this, look what I found yes. thing. It's not like a cover in the sense of like, okay, well now let's all have a sing along because everybody in the audience knows how to sing the mighty Quinn or Wonderwall or something. It's, it's more, it's almost like, here's the show and tell part of the set. Like, my God, I found this incredible record and maybe, I don't know if you guys have ever heard this stuff, but uh, let me play you like a song from this, this band that I found that I love and like maybe you'll like it as much as I do. Yes. So how long did it take to record um, the Crass album? I just wondered how the 12 Crass songs, did it sort of come together quite quickly? Uh, I don't remember exactly i mean this is going back you know right now it's the year 2020 and i made that album in 2006 so this is already 14 years ago um it was the first time that i really spent time on recordings i had never spent that much time thinking about a recording before and the fact that it was somebody else's songs kind of gave me the inspiration to do that. I don't think I would have felt like my own songs were the the aesthetic of my own songs was just quick. It yeah. was like, what how can I just get this down there and make it obvious 
to the person listening that I didn't overthink this. You know, I, I didn't like the aesthetic of an overworked, overthought product. Um, but I started to think about, you know, as, you know, at this point I had made a few records on Rough Trade already. The Crass album was my fourth album. So I'd already been exposed to what was possible in a recording outside of the bedroom. You know, I had already been, I, I had gotten some access to uh, being able to make some different kinds of recordings, to be able to do overdubs, to be able to think about, oh, what instruments can I put on this? What if I add a piano to this? What if I don't like that piano, then I can take it away and add a, a xylophone instead. You know, and then you just start falling down this rabbit hole. Of, it's no longer just you and a tape recorder and your guitar in your bedroom. You, you're like, oh my God, I have the capability to, you know, you can add, you can multi-track the vocals. You can bring in your friend who plays cello. You can bring in your other friend who plays trumpet. You can, you can really overdo it. There's really a danger there once that Pandora's box of recording yes. is open. So the Crass album in some ways was my, my personal experimentation with what a record, you know, being a producer, essentially. I had never acted as a producer before, but I was like, here's these fantastic songs. The original recordings are incredible, but they're extremely raw. They're almost like the way I would have recorded them was, you know, probably one take each. Uh, very raw, you know, those, the original Crass records are just, you know, devastatingly great. But I was, I was almost like, okay, what if I was a producer and those were the demo recordings? How would I flesh this out now that I have the opportunity to add a harmonica to this? What if I maybe, what if I flip the harmonica backwards? What if I, you know, add a female vocal here and then, you know, add blah, 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 blah. So it was the first time that I spent time on making a record. And it was quite fun to think about each one of those songs and be like, what kind of musical setting can I do with this one? What can I do with this one that's different from what I did with that one? And uh, I wasn't even thinking of it as something that would be the next Jeffrey Lewis record. Uh, it was, I don't know what Jeff Travis thought when I told him, uh, well, what I've been working with lately is uh, I made this, I made all these, I recorded all these crass songs. Uh, it might've struck him as quite odd. I don't know if that's what, people were thinking would be the next Jeffrey Lewis record, but yes, uh, it's um, for whatever reason, it, it just ended up being the right thing at the right time. Yes. And then um, obviously, because they've got such a sort of following and dedicated fan base, then you sort of come to the UK to perform them live. And then obviously, occasionally you have a member of the band kind of coming to watch you. Did that feel quite a lot of... Um, did you know they were in the audience or they were one or two members might come and see you and, and how that would feel? Well, that was, that was really amazing that they, you know, the individual members at different shows would show up. And I, I don't think there were any surprises. Like, I don't think any of them kind of ambushed me afterwards. And, you know, I, I, I knew each time ahead of time but I don't quite remember how. I think it was maybe the maybe the concert promoters would have told me, like, you know, in Cambridge, I remember uh, Steve Ignorant came to the show we played in Cambridge on that tour. 
And I'm pretty sure that probably whoever put the gig on was like, you know, Steve Ignorance is, is coming to the show tonight. Or so it was always sort of like that. We always yes. kind of knew. Uh, and then at the London gig, uh, Eve Libertine actually got on stage with us. We did a thing where she did a poem recital and we did some improvised music behind it. And um, so, yeah, it was, you know, it's, what can you do when you actually cross the paths of people that have made some of your favorite art? It's just, you know, it's humbling and it's, you just, all you can say is, uh, I, I don't know, what can you say? You just say, uh, you know, I really love what you do. And, you know, and they were, it wasn't like we went out and got drunk together or anything like that. It was just kind of like, hello, uh, you know, hi, you know, the, the nice work, whatever. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, it was, it was great. It was amazing. I, I can't believe any of that happened. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously that, brings you into a bigger sort of arena of people as well. The name starts to sort of come about. So did that, um, did that give you a lot more kind of exposure and sort of invites to different things? Did, did doors start to open for you after that? Because obviously suddenly people start going, God, someone's done an acoustic album of Crass songs. And it's like, Christ, I've got to listen to that. You know, I just wondered if, if, if you sort of suddenly found, you know, record sales had gone up, you know, your royalty checks had gone up by $5, all that kind of well, stuff. It, it was a time when um, my career was growing, but it was almost, it was almost like the, it, it was almost the other way around because when Rough Trade put my first album out in 2001, I went over to, that was the first time I ever played in England. I went over, uh, my girlfriend was studying in England at the time in London. So I was, my brother and I went to visit her and we stayed. We stayed in England, we stayed in London for maybe a couple of weeks, and she had a place where we could stay. And because my album was out, uh, I got Rough Trade to arrange a couple of very small gigs for us at a couple of very small venues. Um, maybe you know there might have been ten, twenty, thirty people at these shows, and the shows wouldn't have happened if I wasn't if I didn't take it upon myself to just go, you know, visit in London because I happened to have a place to stay at that time. So, but at one of those little gigs, I played a little gig in uh, Camden and in the audience happened to be uh, Ben Ayers, who was the guitarist of Corner Shop. So, because Ben liked the show that I did, I got an invitation. He invited me to open up for Corner Shop on their next tour in the spring of 2002. So that was just kind of out of nowhere. And it, it was the first tour that I had ever done really and it was massive exposure it was playing these giant shows opening for corner shop in front of 600 people a thousand people 1500 people and I was you know that was my introduction to being on stage in front of these audiences um and then from I started to get invited to open up for other bands um and one of the there was a band called the Cribs out of Wakefield a band of brothers and maybe they liked that I play with my brother Jack or you know, we just somehow started, the, the Cribs started inviting us to open up tours for them in the United States and in England. So we did maybe two or three tours opening for the Cribs, and this would have been around 2005. Um, and that started to get us quite a lot of exposure as well. And um, 
we, you know, we were selling comic books and CDs to all of those audiences. And we got invited to play at the Green Man Festival. It might've been the very first year of the Green Man Festival. It was, I think, 2005 or 2004. And we just, it was just me and my brother, Jack, just as an acoustic duo. And we, for some reason, we just went down a storm. We, it was totally unexpected. This one gig at the Green Man Festival, we sold out every piece of merchandise that we had for the entire three week tour, just right from that one set. It was like, it was, it was so much fun. It was just amazing. Like after our set, it was like the entire audience just moved towards the stage, like a mob of zombies and just bought every single thing we had until there was just nothing left. And that really elevated our status in England, particularly. I started to find it much easier to book gigs um, around that point, around 2004, 2005. So at that point where people were starting to really notice and pay attention to us, what I, it was probably quite odd that just as people were starting to look towards me and be like, what is this guy going to do next? What I gave them was an album of crass, you know, just as everybody was like, there's this new songwriter, he's this up and coming songwriter. What's his next album of songs going to be? And then instead it was an album of covers and they were crass songs. So that album was my highest selling album at that point, but it's almost like any, I think anything I put out at that point would possibly have been the highest selling one just because it was a moment where I was getting more attention than I previously had. And it was just a strange thing that the, the album that I did put out then happened to be the crass songs, which perhaps got attention from some different people than would have normally tuned yes. in. Yes, and then, but you've always managed to, over the last, you know, decade, especially, and probably before that, you were, you've always been able to sort of um, bring a song out of the, out of thin air almost, um, to, to sort of not challenge, but highlight the current situation, because you did one on Pussy Riot, didn't you, um, a few years ago, and then you also just done one about the coronavirus as well. So you're obviously able to <laughs> sort of write produce, release records very quickly? Uh, yeah, I mean, like I say, I, I try to keep myself on a schedule where I like going to the open mic every week. I just enjoy going to the open mic. I'm, I like sitting and sketching the musicians. I, I like to just be there for hours where all these amateur songwriters and musicians are getting on stage one after another, taking turn, everybody gets one or two songs. And whether it's in Brooklyn or Manhattan or wherever it is, an open mic night just has always appealed to me. I like the environment. I like being able to sketch the people on stage. And I like playing a new song at an open mic. I, I feel like, why am I going to get on stage and play a song that I've already played before? So if I'm going to treat myself to going to an open mic, I feel like I have to do my homework and write a new song. So it gets me on a schedule where hopefully I'm writing one or two new songs every week just so that I have something new to play at the open mic. And of those songs, you know, out of every 40 songs, maybe three of them feel like they're good enough for me to, uh, you know, maybe put on an album or, you know, when I'm on tour with my band, I might try out some of those songs in the live gigs and kind of see what it feels like to play them, you know, on a bigger stage. Um, so 
they kind of filter all the new songs go through a kind of filtration process where some of them make it into the official catalog of Jeffrey Lewis stuff. And then quite a lot of them end up on the pile of, I played it once at an open mic. It just didn't really feel like it was worth holding on to. So there's the big pile of discarded <laughs> Jeffrey Lewis songs. Excellent. And what would you say to a, an 18 year old self kind of starting out? in the world that is both music and creativity. You know, if there's one thing that you could have said to yourself after these decades of experience and sort of ups and downs, what, what would you say? Uh, hmm, well, what would I say? I, I guess I would, you know, maybe uh, cut your hair earlier. Uh, I didn't really have to have that ponytail for 12 years, um, but, yeah, what would I say? Um, you know, uh, I don't know. Maybe I would say don't even get involved in music. Just stick with the comic books because uh, I kind of started getting involved in the music because I thought it would be an easier day job. You know, I was always like waiting for my comic book career to take off. So I was like, ah, you know, if I need a day job while I'm waiting for the comic career to become a full-time career, then uh, I guess this music is is probably a a cooler, better you know this is a better day job. This will allow me to draw more comics because it won't absorb me the way that you know having some kind of office job will absorb me. It'll be better for my comic career to uh, have music be my day job. But the music day job, uh, you know, is so completely absorbing that I've made a lot. I've made a lot less headway in the comic book world in the last 20 years than I might have if I had not gotten involved in music, if I had just continued working dumb day jobs and waiting for my comic career to develop. Uh, maybe I would have ended up with more of a comic career, which was my goal in the first place. Having a music career was never even my goal, but then it just ended up being, you know, I, I just really love the challenge of it and i love music and i love writing and performing so uh yeah i guess but i'm always thinking like well you know maybe next year i'll give up music and just draw comics full time you know it's always kind of like you know like any hobbyist like any you yes. know anybody who's like you know anybody who has their their hobby like everybody you know somebody's like well i'm gonna quit my job as an insurance agent and next year i'm really gonna just you know be a pro bowler or I'm going to be a pro ping pong player, or I'm just going to, you know, really make a go of my, uh, my restaurant idea or something, you know, <laughs> so it's just bubbling along on the side. It remains something that I do. And there's constantly this background fantasy, like one of these years, I'm going to give up on everything else and just, just do comic books. Yes. And then it's still there. Did you manage, I mean, I mean, one thing that kind of knocks a lot of people out, well, I suppose there's several, I mean, there's the dynamic of the band, obviously you don't have that problem at all. Um, there's also the business and the admin side and sort of the publishing and also kind of changing musical sort of fashion, which a lot of indie bands got fed up because they weren't going to go into dance music and the whole ecstasy scene. So that kind of you know, made people just think, oh, I've just had enough now. Did you manage to keep hold of your music? I mean, the publishing and ownership of it? Well, certainly I've spent quite a lot of time in the last 20 years dealing with administrative stuff, which is not what I ever planned on doing with my life. 
uh, even, you know, booking tours, dealing with contracts. Uh, I didn't know how to do any of this stuff at first. And just from necessity, I've ended up doing quite a lot of it. So you sort of learn how to do it accidentally over time. Um, yeah, I don't, uh, you know, I've been lucky enough to never be successful. So I've never, you know, I've been able to be my own little kind of success without that interacting or intersecting with any kind of widespread popularity. So because I never have had my moment, then I'm, I have yet to become a has-been because I'm still a not yet. Uh, while I keep bubbling along as a not yet, then my, my moment of like, now he's here that, you know, then that moment is over. And then you're like, well, now he's a has-been because he, you know, that's <laughs> that guy who was famous back in 2009, you know, because I never got to that level. I'm just bubbling along underneath. And that's, you know, why not? I never, the thing is, I just never had a goal in music anyway. I, I, I really admire kind of um, working creatives, you could say. Somebody like Marky e. Smith, somebody like Alan Moore, somebody like uh, Martin Newell of uh, Cleaners from Venus. Oh, yes. Um, uh, somebody like uh, maybe Julian Cope or... Um, you know, obviously the fall is, a, is the classic example of a, you know, a real working aesthetic where you just make new stuff. It doesn't matter how much the audience likes what you did two years ago. You're going to make your new stuff. You play some old stuff, you play some new stuff, but you're pushing the, you're just pushing the rock up the hill constantly um, and going forward because that's, creating is the, the the challenge of the creating is the uh the most important part of it so yes you but might have your hits you, you might have certain hits along the way but you don't let those paralyze you into not creating new stuff even if the new stuff isn't as good as the old stuff just keep going forward well i suppose there was a few artists i mean there's a couple like david bowie who just you know, hit, you know, hit the big time in the 70s and then had to try and maintain something. But there was people like Lemmy from Motorhead who, you know, there was no plan B, a bit like Marty Smith. It was like, do an album, do a tour, have a few months off, do an album, do a tour, you know, and um, try and get a record label, try and get it released and try and stay in the public arena. But there was no, we can sit back because we, you know, we don't need to work. It's like, we need to work, so we'll just keep on doing the next gig and next kind of thing. And he looked at it very much like a job, you know, he didn't sort of look at it as a, you know, as he often said in interviews, you know, he often doesn't feel like it, but then, you know, he said a plumber probably doesn't always feel like it, but you have to go and do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but your job as an artist is to blow people's minds, to blow your own mind uh, and to blow other people's minds because, um, that is the job. Like if you were a plumber, your job is to make the pipes connect. They don't leak. They don't get backed up. They function. Yes. That's your function. And as an artist, your function is to blow minds. Um, so it's just somebody who sticks two pipes together. That doesn't mean they're a working plumber. Uh, 
because if it doesn't really function, then you're not going to make a living as a plumber. So to make a living as an artist, you can't just clock in and stick a couple of pipes together and throw a couple of chords together and get on stage and just do the same old, same old. You're, you have to create something new that is going to blow your own mind um, and hopefully blow other people's minds. That's the job. That's not going above and beyond. That's just what the job is, just like making the plumbing work. Yes. Um, so if you can keep on clocking in and doing your job, blowing minds, like not just being okay, but actually phenomenally making people's brains explode and making your own soul just shake and quiver with the artistic discoveries that you're making, that's what you're clocking in to do. And that's, you're basically, you're on the front lines all the time. You're like a, you know, like a scientist who's trying to map the genome of something. You're every day that you clock in at work, you're not just sleepwalking through the motions. You're actually on the threshold of new discoveries, new failures, new heartbreak, new victory. And yes. that's the, that's the job. But for every, you know, every low album, you do have a tin machine moment as well. So I think, you know, you, you know, the artist can't just always, you know, deliver to that standard that you've just mentioned. Sometimes they, they get it wrong and they have to sort of dust themselves down and come back again. So I think with people like Motorhead at, at the end of their career, you know, I think they got it right. They got, you know, a good band. They got a good producer who knew how to get the sound. The writing was good. You know, they'd got themselves quite a nice little, you know, the audience were better than they were in the 90s and possibly the 80s. So that was good. But, you know, like, yeah, David Bowie, you know, who is the, my, you know, person I'm always been obsessed with. I mean, you know, it's kind of interesting seeing the way his career fluctuated and the different things he tried from his kind of 60s stuff to his kind of very successful 70s. But then he lost it in the 80s kind of slightly gained it in the 90s and then yeah you know it was just it's kind of interesting watching an artist yeah well you know Lou Reed is like the another very important artist to me and just somebody who just fearlessly went forward through his whole career um and had different different moments of uh transcendent success or right you know writers are like look at you know philip roth or any any writer they just write their whole life they write one novel after another after another and um you know why not the, the only reason that that seems odd in the world of rock and roll is because there's a certain amount of rock and roll that's about sexiness and sexiness has a shelf life you know you might be mick jagger or you might be somebody who's made sexiness a part of the rock and roll aesthetic that you're going for and that starts to seem a bit ridiculous as you get out of your, you know, reproductive years. Um, but I think rock and roll beyond the merely, uh, the merely uh, sexual as a form, um, you know, it seems like these long-term artists like The Fall, like Lou Reed, uh, it's not just about going out and like hooking up with somebody on the dance floor there's a there's a certain poetry and uh there's a there's a different aesthetic to it so you know for folk and for jazz and for novelists there's no reason not to have a lifelong career but for rock and roll we usually think of it as having a shorter shelf life because a lot of rock and roll is associated with just like the raging hormones of like must have sex rock and roll is a vehicle for having sex so therefore rock and roll must end once you 
exit that phase of your life. But I think that's why people associate rock with short careers rather than the long careers of a novelist or a poet or a painter. Yes, absolutely. Yes, it's an interesting one. It's interesting though, because I think Mick Jagger still, a, he was a father a few years ago, so his reproductive side is, seems to be functioning still in his 70s. <laughs> right, but it's, you know, it's not, um, it, it's, that's what's different about rock and roll versus other art forms. Uh, and so it starts to look a bit ridiculous. You know, Grace Slick from Jefferson Airplane retired and, and just went into being a painter. And she just said that, you know, all rock, all people in rock should retire when they, you know, hit their 30s or their 40s or something, because you just look ridiculous as like an old person up there singing rock songs. And that's very few people have managed to successfully navigate turning old as a rock and roller. Um, Lou Reed did it very successfully. And Marky e. Smith, maybe more successfully than anybody in history, um, embraced being an old rocker. Um, you know, his lyrics, what, you know, his, the, 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 the transitions and what his lyrical topics were, uh, you know, anyway, but, but this is, I, I should, uh, I should get back to doing other stuff. Yes. Okay. Sorry, Jeffrey. Thank you. And I'll send you a copy when it happens. Sure. Yeah. Keep up all the good work and I uh, hope you and yours are doing well in these challenging times. Yes. Stay safe, Jeffrey. You too. Take so care. Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with the American singer, songwriter, comic book artist, Jeffrey Lewis. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, well done. You get a medal. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. And also, all these shows have been archived on... You can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's all there and much, much more. Anyway, stay safe. Have a good week.